Mike Boswell thinks he can't preach. Well done. Thank you for leading us. Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to close out this chapter this morning. Romans chapter 8, that's in the New Testament if you're a a guest with us, and so you can find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you go Acts, and then Romans. We're in the 8th chapter. I invite you to follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 31, and I think the words will be up on the screen if you don't have a copy of God's Word in your lap. Hear the Word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who who did not spare his own son but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our passage this morning begins with a question, doesn't it? What shall we say to these things? Well, what things, Paul? What, what things are you referring to? Well, Paul's asking this question to produce in us a a response in light of all that has been said since Romans chapter 5, verse 1. If you've been with us over the last uh, month or so, or several months, uh, I've tried to keep uh, keep it in our mind that that Romans 8 is part of a a bigger section that began in Romans 5, and that 5, 6, 7, and 8 is all pressing forward trying to impress upon us the great hope that we have in Christ. And so this morning, as we bring uh, Romans 8 to a close, we're really coming to a climactic end. And this is intended to draw our hearts in the heights of worship. And so since chapter 5, we've really been overwhelmed like, like massive waves of awesomeness coming to us and, and overwhelming us with the greatness of the gospel. Just to bring ourselves up to speed, if you haven't been with us, but even if you have, to bring us by way of reminder, we, we've seen beginning in chapter 5 that, that some of these blessings that we have, these things that Paul is speaking of, refer to being justified by faith in Christ. And as a result, we have peace with God. That's Romans 5, 1 through 11. Not only that, but God's grace in Christ has triumphed over the powers of sin and death that hold the world in their snare. And that's Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. God's grace in Christ has set us free from sin in order that we could live to his glory. That's chapter 6, 1 through 14. God's grace in Christ is actively at work in us. 
working to transform our lives for righteousness. That's chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. God's grace through the Spirit has set us free from the condemnation of the law. That's chapter 7. And then here in chapter 8, we've seen that the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts, enabling us to walk with God. That's the first 17 verses. The gift of the Spirit also guarantees that we'll be resurrected and enjoy a new creation free from the curse of sin. It's verses 18 through 25. And then last week we saw that God is working all things in our lives to bring about our glorious redemption. And so all these wonderful truths are like streams flowing out of the fountain of the gospel. You've heard us say the gospel is more than just Jesus died for my sins. It's, it's certainly nothing less. But the gospel is, is overflowing with abundance of goodness towards us. And, and I just summarized chapters 5 through 8 for you. And, and if you've been with us on the journey, it's, you know, we've been going through some heavy material. There's a lot there. The gospel is, is never ending in its glories and its splendors to be explored. And so all these things we have seen are given to us because and are find their foundation on Christ's death and resurrection. In other words, what we've been seeing is the good news that Jesus has secured for us a great salvation. Jesus has secured for us a great salvation. And so the various implications of the gospel that have been expounded upon since Romans chapter 5 are the basis by which you and I, if we are in Christ, have hope. Let me ask you today, if you're, if you're visiting or, or maybe you've been here for a while, do you want hope? Do you want hope in this life? Do you long for stability? Maybe, maybe you see your life and, and it, is, it is a mess and you're longing for some stable ground to, to stand upon? Do you, do you long for a firm foundation? Then come to Jesus. Because as we've seen, Jesus is the anchor of our soul, ensuring for us this great salvation. And so back to Paul's question, what should we say to these things, is really a question of how should we respond to the glorious truths of the gospel? What should be in our mind? And that's what we're going to find out this morning. And we should be saying, in summary this morning, we are more than conquerors because of what God has done for us. We're more than conquerors. And what has he done? We're going to see this morning that he has graced us, he has justified us, and he has loved us. God has graced us, he has justified us, and he has loved us. And on the basis of these truths that we're going to see in verses 31 through 39, we can have confidence, brothers and sisters, that we will preserve, be preserved to the end. We can be confident that we will last, that we will never fall away, that he will keep us safe in his hands until he comes back. That's what we just did when we took the Lord's Supper. We're proclaiming his death and resurrection until, his, until he returns, and, we are, and he's promising us in that gospel truth that he will keep us until he returns. So the first reason we're more than conquerors is because God has graced us. Paul puts it this way in, in, at the end of verse 31. He answers his question with another question. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
So if you're thinking about the gospel and the rich truths that we've been saying, you should be able to say, God is for me. Who, who can be against me? Now, clearly, this doesn't mean that people are not opposed to us. Isn't that right? I mean, Jesus, as we read in that high priestly prayer, speaks about the world hating his own because they're not of the world. So, so what is he saying? If God's for us, who can be against us? He's saying that no opponent, no enemy, no force can successfully war against us. It will not succeed. Succeed in what? That we would fall away. That we would reject Christ. That we would, we would give up on the gospel. Well, how do I come to that conclusion? You remember the parable of the sowers, of the sower in Matthew 13? And Jesus gives the parable of the one tossing the seed out. And there's the one that gets choked out by the weeds. And when Jesus interprets that parable, he says, tribulations, persecutions, the cares of the world choked it out. These are the same forces that Paul talks about here that will not separate us from the love of God. What's he talking about here? He's saying that the gospel is so sure, that we are so bought, that we are so secured in Christ, that he will keep us through those things. So what should we say to these things? If God's for us, meaning He is going to preserve us and keep us, nothing that's thrown in our way is going to be against us. It's not going to succeed. So do you view God like this? Let me ask you, do you think God is for you? Do you believe that God is on your side, that you are in Christ, that you are His adopted child? He's not working against you. How do you know that? Well, we look to the cross, and that's exactly what Paul says in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, what he, Paul is telling us is the way we know that we are loved by God, that we are secured by God, that God is for us, he says, put on gospel lenses. See the world through the cross. You have to go back to God's past event in your life to find the anchor. That's why Jesus Christ is a solid rock in which we stand. And so we are to interpret all things in this life through the lens of the cross. Well, what does that look like? Well, he tells us, he says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him for you who are in Christ. So what is he saying here? He's saying, if God has done the more difficult thing, not sparing his son, why would he not do the easier thing? That is, give you all things in Christ. You see that logic? God has given up his son for you. And he's died and rose again for you. If he's done that for you, would not the other blessings that come with Christ be secured? Why would he do that and then not do the other? God is for you, Paul is saying. And I don't want you to miss this in verse 32. Notice where all these things come from. They are with him. You see that? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What do I want us to see there? All these blessings of the gospel, all God's grace, they funnel through the person of Christ. And so if you're not a believer in Christ, if you haven't come to know him, if you haven't trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you haven't 
found him to be the anchor of your soul, well, then these truths aren't for you right now. God isn't for you. He's against you, as we have seen. You're, you're his enemy. You're not at peace with God. You're at odds with God. But it doesn't have to remain so. All who come to him, he will never cast away. And so for those who have faith, that is, have trusted Christ in his love for you, and, and you love him and you worship him, God is for you. So what are all things that God will graciously give to those who are in his son? Have you noticed that there? He's, he's got a lot of uh, comprehensive statements here. Last week, God works all things. So what should we say to these things? And will God not all freely give us all things? So does that mean, okay, great, that car that I've been longing for, God's going to give it to me. That's what the TV preacher wants you to believe. If you just have enough faith, he'll give it to you, like me. No, I'm not talking about me. Um, what are the all things that God will give us? Well, certainly, the blessings of being an heir with Christ. We saw that in chapter 8, right? If you're an adopted son with Christ, you're going to now be an inheritor of all that is his. And what is all that is his? Well, We've seen the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection. We'll share in a resurrection like His. But not only our resurrection, but the resurrection of this earth that is broken. And we, we have promises of a new heavens and a new earth where God will dwell and heaven and earth will be reunited. Those are great promises. But these promises aren't just limited to the future, but also include the present. And I want you to see this a, a little bit more clearly if you would, go over one book of the Bible to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says something very similar, but I think helps us maybe expand our categories a little bit. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I just want us to look at a couple of verses beginning in verse 21. Paul is counteracting the Corinthians' obsession with celebrity preachers. Some say they're of Paul, some say they're of Apollo, some say they're of Peter. And Paul's saying, you're looking at this all wrong. And he says, verse 21, so let no one boast in men. That's what he's talking about. But then he says, for all things are yours. He says, this is contrary to how you're acting. All things are yours. And then look at what he includes. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. What is he getting at here? He's saying, because you are Christ's possession, you are Christ's, and Christ is God's, all things that are his are going to be ours. And does he own Paul, and Apollos, and Cephas, and the things of this world, and the things that come? Aren't all things in his hands? Okay, so in what sense are all these things ours? Well, in the same sense, I think that Paul's been saying in Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things for our good. In that all things, people, circumstances, life, death, the present, the future, are God's gracious gift to you for your good. Are you making that connection? All things are yours and are working for your good. 
And God has given them to you in Christ. They're under his lordship, and they are working for your redemption. In other words, God's graced us, right? That's what he says. He's graciously given us all things. Let me ask you this morning. Do you see the world through these types of gospel lenses? Do you see all things as God's gracious gift to you? Even suffering and death when it occurs. Do you see it as your good? If you struggle here, remember this. If God had allowed His perfect Son to suffer terribly, why should we think that something like that would never happen to us? Did God's love cease for Christ and His great suffering? Then why would we think that His love for us would cease? And just as Christ suffered and died under God's sovereign direction, which led to His resurrection and defeat of death, so when we endure under trial and suffering, God's sovereign direction is over us, leading to our resurrection and glory. But sometimes we forget these truths, don't we? And we get mad at God. You ever get mad? You look at your circumstances and they don't work out the way that you planned them? You ever said some of these things? God, I wanted that job. You ever, ever been there? You didn't get the job you wanted. Or why did you let me do that stupid thing? You ever said something you wish you hadn't said or done something you hadn't done? And you say, God, why did you make me do it? You ever done that? I saw a football player once drop a, an easy pass to win a, a, a football game. And after the game, he said, I'm so mad at God for letting me drop the pass. We've done that haven't done it on the big stage or god why can't i have the blessing of a spouse like everybody else seems to or why can't i have the blessing of a child why did you take that person out of my life why don't you free me from this sin why don't you take this pain away you ever thought like that What should we say to these things, Paul says? If God is for us, who or what can be against us? These things are for our benefit, even if we can't see them now. Leading to our ultimate good, that is our glorification. And so we could say we're, we're more than conquerors. He's, these things aren't against us. And we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit more. How can it be more than a conqueror? How, don't you just conquer things? But We're more than conquerors. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But we're more than conquerors because God's graced us. He's for us. All these things are His gracious gift working for our good. These things aren't against us. They're not going to hinder our progress in the faith. They're not going to keep us from Him. Actually, they're propelling us to Him. They're for us. But not only that, He's not only graced us, but He's justified us. These are truths we've already seen, but... But Paul reiterates them in verses 33 through 34, and he, he does so by raising two questions. He says, who, number one, shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring anything against you? And the second question is, who's, verse 34, who is to condemn? And these questions really get to the same idea, don't they? If we're God's elect, what accusation can stick against us at the judgment? That's what he's after. On the last day, who's going to bring a charge against you that's going to stick? 
Who can raise something against you that's going to lead to your condemnation? If we understand the gospel, we know no one can, right? Nothing can stick. Well, who's going to be raising these accusations? Well, certainly the world does in a, in a sense, but we see that Satan, who's the devil, he's characterized as the, the accuser of the brethren, right? Revelation chapter 12 who accuses us before God night and day. When we think of Satan as accuser, many of us think of uh, Job, don't we? Who says, the only reason he praises you is because you've given him all these great blessings, a wonderful family, riches, health. And God says, you can attack him. Oh, what? And you won't be able to break him. That's, that's living action of this truth. We could go to Job, but I want to take us somewhere that, that, that maybe we haven't seen before, but has the same great truths, and that is the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is in the Old Testament. If you start at the Gospels and just work your way back just a, a few books, you, you will find yourself in Zechariah. Okay? There's Malachi and then Zechariah. I'm working backwards. But if you go to Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah receives a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord in the heavenly throne. And so just like Job, we kind of get a behind-the-scenes look. And I want you, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to look at this in light of Romans 8. Listen what occurs. Verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, this is great, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua, standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Here's the deal. The accusations in one level are true. This is the high priest going to stand before you holy? He's in filthy garments. This is Satan accusing him. Verse 4, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, we now, looking after the cross, see, oh, how that, how that happens, right? The accuser does stand before the heavenly throne, accusing us day and night. Look at what they are doing. Look at your people. Look at how sinful they are. In one sense, we are, aren't we? We are. But just as Satan receives a rebuke from the angel of the Lord in that text, so in the same way, Jesus says, I rebuke you, they are my chosen ones. You see that? It's the same thing he says. Why doesn't Satan's rebuke work against jo uh, the high priest who represented Israel, Jerusalem? Because I have chosen them. They are mine. They're not yours, and I have clothed them. And so Paul answers now in Romans 8, 
this question. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who is going to condemn? And he gives two answers. The first one, he says, well, it's God who justifies. We've, we've been justified. What does that mean? It means he doesn't count your sin against you. That's Romans 4. How blessed is the man on whom the Lord does not count their iniquity. Blessed is that man and that woman. And that's what happens to those who believe in Jesus Christ, who put their trust in them. Their sins are washed away forever. It's a declaration. Who's going to bring a, a charge against us? No one, because God is the one who justifies. That's what he's done for you if you're in Christ. How can he do that, someone would say. Is he just going to look the other way? No. Paul answers that. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. Not only that, but was raised, right? And who sits on the throne before, the, before God interceding on our behalf. And so Jesus says to the accuser, I, the Lord who have chosen them, rebuke you, Satan. Because I have died and I have paid the penalty for their sin. So take off that filthy garment and put on a robe dipped in blood that makes them white as snow. That's what happens when Jesus is interceding on our behalf. I love the, the passage in 1 John. You can turn there and you can just listen. But John is writing to churches in Ephesus and he says, My little children, this is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. These gospel truths, you, you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, an interceder, right? A mediator. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, that is the satisfaction, for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. How can you stand before God victorious? Because Christ is your righteousness. It's a righteousness outside of you. But when we believe and we trust, God is working in us and transforming us and producing that love and worship in Him. And we're growing to be more like Him. Are we what we will be? No. But we are not what we once were. And no matter what the accuser comes or when it plagues your conscience and you have you're battling sin, temptation, maybe you've fallen and stumbled. You think, God would never love me. Well, then you've forgotten these truths. What should we say to these things? God is for us who can be against us. You see how that works? And in fact, even now your sin that you, you struggle with is a means of God's grace to draw you closer to Him, not to push you away. So brothers and sisters, we're more than conquerors even over our sin because God has justified us. Last, lastly, we're more than conquerors because simply, brothers and sisters, God loves us. God has loved us. And really, this last point is, is all that needed to be said. But you know me, I've got to talk, right? Paul comes back. This all can be summarized in God's love. God loved us. It's a past act of love, but it's a sign that of his continuing love for us. The reason God has graciously given us all things is because he loved us. The reason God has justified us and forgiven us of our sins is because He loved us. And so we see in this passage, what, verse 35, shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
What's going to do that? This is really getting back to God's for us. What can be against us? And that, that against us, what's going to separate us from the love of Christ that's keeping us? Nothing. That's the answer. Nothing is going to separate us. And look, he gives a list. And these are the s- similar things that Jesus says in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. I invite you to just maybe read that this afternoon in your own time. Maybe talk about it community group. Shall our tribulations, distresses, and persecutions separate us? Do those things, are those things a sign that, that God doesn't love us? No. All things are working for our good. God is for us. In fact, these things aren't going to work against us. They're going to draw us closer to Him. He goes on, shall famine or nakedness, just think of your lack. Maybe, do you need things in your life? Is your lack a sign that God doesn't love you? No. What about danger or even execution by the sword? That's public execution. And we don't really fear those things, but our brothers and sisters around the world do. And these texts would be great comfort to them. God hasn't removed his love from you. He's kept you to the end. And Paul cites here in verse 36, Psalm 44, this this psalm, interesting, they... uh, Jews refer to it as the martyr psalm. It's a psalm of prayer where the psalmist is lamenting and praying as going through suffering, and in the midst of it is praying, God, have you forgotten us? Have you ever been there? You've been through a trial or struggle in your life, and you're praying, you're praying, and, and it, it seems like I am alone. Have you ever felt like that? The psalmist, Psalm 44, is, is expressing that deep heart and and at a level, that, that, that's something that we experience, and this isn't necessarily sinful. It's, it's drawing us to cry to our Heavenly Father. And, and in verse 23, I think it is, of Psalm 44, he, this is what he's quote, For your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul seems to be bringing the answer to that lament. In the following verse, is that true? Have we been abandoned? Have we been regarded as sheep to the slaughter in the sense that he is not going to rescue us, that he has no plan for us, that he does not love us? No, verse 37, or yeah. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're more than conquerors. Well, what does he mean? I kind of alluded to this earlier. Why not just say we conquer over our troubles? Why not just say we, we, we rise up and we overcome them? Because we only conquer those things that are actually against us, right? Now, I want you to follow this train of thought. You think of a sporting event. I, I do that. If you're not into sports, think of maybe war. You're trying to defeat that enemy, right? And, and you've got a game plan or a strategy by which you defeat and you win the battle. You, de- you defeat the enemy. You win the game. And you view the person in the other jersey or the other uniform on the other side. That's your enemy in some sense. But we're more than conquerors. Why? Because these things that are our enemies, that are against us, are actually under God's sovereign hand working for us. You see that? 
Do you see what Paul's saying? We're more than conquerors. This isn't those things are against us and we just triumph over them and we, we keep going up the ladder till we make it to heaven. No, actually these things under Christ's rule are working for us. And so we're, we're more than conquering over these things. These things that look to be our enemies are actually for us. Even though they have a big old sign on their head that says, I'm against you. These are great truths that, con- that we have conquered, not in and of ourselves, but because of Christ who loved us. I want to show you this. Uh, I want you to go to the book of Revelation. This one's easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible. One of the, uh, th- this term, conqueror, is only used um, a few times in the Scriptures. And in Roman cha- or I mean Revelation chapter twelve, we we see it used again. Now I want you to see how this works. This again is a heavenly vision, so we're kind of seeing things behind the scenes, well, how things really are. And I, let's go and re- begin in, in verse ten. John says, "And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying." I believe this is talking about cross, what happened at the cross and its effect in our lives. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, meaning his accusations don't stick anymore because of what Christ has done. Verse 11, and they have conquered him, that's us, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. How did we do it? For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This is what Paul's talking about here in Romans 8. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, even if we are martyred. And what he's saying is that you will, he will keep you even through death. And you will conquer Satan who is accusing you and trying to get you to deny the Lord and fall away and turn against him. It won't happen because we're more than conquerors because even his threats against us are actually keeping us closer to him. I mean, I've often wondered, I mean, I I don't want to experience this, but when we hear of those saints who are martyred overseas, I mean, most recently we think of the horrific things happening with ISIS and literally chopping people's heads off who are Christians, pastors, torturing them. They think they'll break them, but they're not. They're just clinging tighter to Christ. They're more than conquerors. And we look at that and say, that's humanly impossible. That's exactly right. That's the Lord's work keeping us and preserving them to the end. And so Paul lists more things than just persecution. Trouble, distress, lack, need, famine. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. And so it's on the basis of God's unfailing love for us in Christ that we are to be confident that we'll, we're going to last, even though it doesn't feel like we're going to last. We're going to last to see the hope to which we were called. 
So this is what he says in verse 38 39. For I am sure, there's that confidence right there, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pretty comprehensive. He's talking about the things of this life that you can see, death, even the angelic and demonic powers. Things that you can't see. Nothing can break the chain that we saw of those whom he foreknew he predestined, those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. The unbreakable chain of God's work of salvation, it cannot be broken because he's done this for you. So Oak Park, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, right? Because he's graced us, he's justified us in Christ, and he's loved us. And on this basis, brothers and sisters, we can go out of here more than conquerors, no matter what comes our way. And so where I want to encourage you is let your mind set and rest upon these truths. Let them rest this week. And not only this week, but every day of our lives until our Savior comes. Because He's promised to keep us. Let's pray. Lord, I do, I, I pray your prayer for us in John 17, that you keep us. And Lord, we know that your keeping is not taking us out of the world, but keeping us from the evil one in the world, so that he will not succeed in causing one of us to fall away. Lord, that's the good promises of your word. Lord, comfort us with these things this week, as, as many of us are, are enduring hardship and trial. Maybe we're grieving the loss of a family member. Maybe we're, we're feeling the effects of, curse, of the curse in our body through temptation or even uh, disease. Maybe we're struggling to make ends meet and we're suffering lack. Maybe we are feeling persecution. Maybe loneliness. And Lord, may we never buy into what the accuser says that these are signs that you don't love us. May we come back to these truths and find hope, find the anchor for our soul in Christ that these are actually means that, by which you're keeping us and drawing us closer to you. May you do that this week and every day of our lives until our dying breath. And we know that even then that you will keep us through death and you will bring us to resurrection. We pray these things with eager hearts. Amen.